0: Is Nick, and I'm Damien. And you're listening to the EQIQ EQ podcast. podcast. This is where the independent scientists and biotech entrepreneur come to find new paths to success.
1: Join us as we discuss strategies to launch your vision, grow your team's potential, and uncover hacks to push your career
0: well beyond what you thought was. possible.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the EQ IQ podcast. My name is Nick,
0: and I'm Damien, and we have in our background here riding this boat across the Chicago River. <laughs> Bring it in, Pablo.
2: Stretching this out. What's going on? It's sailing into oh. the sunset of the Great Lakes. World's largest freshwater system. (laughs) You guys and your corny jokes. Yeah, we are
1: here today with a special guest. We have Dr. Sarah Andrus with us today. Sarah, say hello.
3: Hi, everybody.
0: Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Sarah is a lead scientist and professor from Oregon Health and Science University, which is located in Portland, Oregon. And her work actually focuses on molecular mechanisms of gastrointestinal health. And she's trying to understand the GI homeostasis and inflammation and cancer. She'll talk a little bit about that But second to that love for her science is the love for teaching and mentorship. And she's taking that love and desire to help others who are just as passionate as she is within the science and develop their own scientific visions. Welcome, Sarah. So do you wanna tell our audience a little bit about some of your work and how
3: you do your work? For sure. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here and I'm happy to talk a little bit about our work and and how I got started. So my lab is presently focused on studying inflammation that occurs in neonates particularly premature neonates a disease called necrotizing enterocolitis and we're really interested in human milk and how different factors in human milk may help to protect against or prevent the disease in these babies and so we have several projects that are focused on on looking at this and we're hoping to potentially develop some therapeutics from the projects that we have underway in the lab. What got you interested
0: in this? Because this is kind of niche within niche, right? (laughs) Little babies and milk. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Um, It is actually, it's a fairly long story, but I originally, when I went to graduate school, really wanted to work on studying neurodegeneration in fruit flies, which is a very long cry from studying human babies and milk. (laughs) (laughs) And so I originally selected graduate programs based on this interest, but proceeded with an open mind to do some rotations and ended up falling in love with a lab that studied gastrointestinal mechanisms. And I haven't left the gut since. And actually, interestingly, all of my work up until this point was focused mostly on adult disease and especially colorectal cancer. But I was very first introduced to this disease, necrotizing enterocolitis, and one of the downstream negative impacts that it can have, which is short bowel syndrome, where the region of the gut that's impacted in the baby can become so inflamed and necrotic that it has to be removed, which can result in short bowel syndrome. So basically, the baby or the individual has much less of an intestine or colon than they need to effectively absorb nutrients and water. And so I was first introduced to this as a graduate student and was just fascinated by this concept of this loss of gut and how you could prevent that. And I think looking back retrospectively that kind of influenced my interest in working in this area now some 10 years later.
0: Do you find that it was probably a little bit different from some of your other fellow students that maybe have gone on more basic research? Because this is uh, jumping into the translational aspect of your research isn't isn't as common as some people think, especially in the basic sciences.
3: There's definitely a mix of us in science, I would say, ranging from a spectrum of basic scientists to people who do translational work to people who do purely kind of clinical trial-based studies. And I guess I would call my work kind of in the middle of that. I like to do basic science from the standpoint of looking at mechanisms of disease or mechanisms of, of preventing disease, but always with a, a human angle. So it, I like to have it be relevant to human patients and helping improve treatments and preventative measures for disease. That helps me to give my work kind of personal meaning and relevance if I know that it's going to go to helping a higher cause.
0: So it sounds like that you always have had that bend towards more of a holistic approach to your science. Is that correct
3: yeah and i can definitely see that when i look back at the different projects that i've worked on in my original project which was looking at different therapeutic combinations to treat Huntington's disease and fruit flies. And that was the project that I had that originally got me really excited about going to graduate school and interested in doing research as a career. And that project was very translational. And I can see as I moved through all the different stages of my training and development as a scientist, that kind of link to that translational relevance throughout.
0: Was there anybody that particularly inspired you in this area Or would you say that was probably intuitive within yourself?
3: Um, I think it was probably a combination of both. I think I've always been passionate about helping people from a young age, getting involved in service projects and, and things like that. But during my scientific career, there were definitely mentors along the way who kind of helped shape me into the scientist that I've become and helped inspire different steps of my career. Dr. Bill Wolfgang was my mentor for the the Huntington's Disease Fruit Fly Project, who really helped me get passionate about translational science and Dr. Amy Ahern-Rindell at the University of Portland was my mentor for my thesis project as an undergraduate and kind of took me under her wing and let me kind of go off in left field and open a fruit fly lab (laughs) in a closet at the university so that I could continue doing the research. And then Dr. Kay Lund at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill uh, was my advisor and uh, mentor as a graduate student. And then Dr. Anil Rustigy, now at Columbia University, was my postdoc. Stock advisor. And and each of those people helped kind of shape me and kind of contributed different pieces to my overall fabric as a mentor and a a researcher.
0: Wow. It's kind of glad that you shared that. Thank you so very much, because I think about even my own background within the work that I did in my undergrad, and I worked with fruit flies as well, (laughs) but a lot of it was in and around developmental processes within evolution. There wasn't a whole lot of like translational aspect to the, the work, but being stuck in these little closets with little fruit flies and so i don't know if you know this pablo fruit flies as as much as as tiny and in, insignificant as they are they get into everything
2: <laughs> when you said fruit flies i was like what yeah okay i'm gonna have to google this afterwards because <laughs> you always know
1: if there's a flute, uh, fruit fly lab on your floor because <laughs> like, you catch them everywhere on your lunch um, i mean it's middle of winter hall. here
2: in chicago and we went to the market the the other day and we got fruit and lo and behold, there were fruit flies. I'm not an entomologist, but I do like <laughs> insects quite a bit. And I don't tend to see them during the winter time as much. Like you might get midges or something if you're like by a river, but I was like, where are they coming from? And I realized we had bought <laughs> fruit. Fascinated fascinating insects, obviously. Yeah,
0: it's an amazing tool to understand a lot of genetic aspects of development. And it's amazing for those researchers that kind of work in that field as well to do that. It takes a lot of dedication.
3: Lots of time spent under a microscope counting fruit flies that are asleep because you put them to sleep with CO2. That's
2: insane.
0: And don't let them wake up and then you actually in- inhale a few of them.
3: <laughs> don't let it be the one with the genotype that you wanted that you've been breeding for months. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you've like myself had some great mentors in this area. So do you find that there was maybe one or two that really like sparked your your interest and helped facilitate that? And what was there anything that was said that made you go, yeah, I really, really love this.
3: Well, I remember one thing that stood out to me was when I was working in Bill's lab over the summer is his just contagious excitement for the science. And we would just sit at lunch talking about, you know, different experiments that we might try or or things he was interested in testing. And I felt like so green and so new. I was just a, a rising senior in undergrad. So I would just sit with him at lunch and, and the postdoc in the lab at the time, and we he would just share with me all these big ideas that he had and I was first of all flattered that he was sharing them with me because I felt like I knew so little about the project in the area but also just the idea that you could think so big about different Um, problems and different ways to solve them. And I think that really kind of solidified this interest that I had to go to graduate school. And then I guess related to the mentoring aspect, both Kay and Anil are really outstanding mentors. And one thing that sticks in my head is I remember, I I think Kay said it to me one time when I was in her lab, but she talked about that when you go talk to your mentor about something that you should feel better after you leave their office than when you went Mm. in. And that's something I always try to think about now when I meet with my trainees or, or just anybody just you know, the idea that you're you're trying to help them solve problems and kind of massage their fears as opposed to like stressing them out or making them feel worse about themselves.
0: Yeah, that's a huge deal when you're trying to help somebody to get past their anxieties or their fears and especially the field of science. It's such a intimidating field, especially those that are new at it. There's always this underlying I'm afraid of sounding or feeling dumb or stupid. Yeah.
1: There's a pretty nuanced I mean you and personal notion of what a good mentor is. Is there something that sort of your, the people that you call your primary good mentors, is there something about them that was common that you had an affinity to or that kept you around?
3: I think all of them took a very customized approach to mentoring of kind of matching what I needed to their mentoring style, as opposed to like a one size fits all approach. And I try to carry that through now with my trainees also.
1: When you say you carry that on, like how do you, do that in terms of, because it's, I mean, inherently it's a custom thing for every individual. So what does that mean for you right now?
3: So I guess I look at it as, you know, if you're mentoring a postdoc, someone who has a significant amount of training and experience, kind of what they need to go to the next step is to be able to think more independently, design their own experiments and work kind of at that level where I'm, I'm there for feedback and support, but they're kind of really out there on their own a little bit using my resources, but working more independently. Whereas if I have a technician or a graduate student, someone who has less experience and needs more formal guidance or instruction, I provide that level of scaffolding to fit the person's needs. But then on a more, I guess, specific or detailed level, thinking about like a deadline, for example, like some people operate really well if you give them a hard deadline for something. Other people, it it gives them great anxiety and stresses them out. So, if you can understand what motivates the people that you're training, then you can kind of give them that to help help them be successful. And I think getting to know individual trainees on a personal level helps to figure out kind of those nuances to to each person and develop an independent approach to each of them.
1: Are there any techniques or methods that you've sort of developed in your own leadership style to get to know them in a certain way to to find out what motivates them?
3: Yeah. So I think there's a couple really specific things that I lean on. And one of those is weekly one-on-one meetings. I'm kind of religious about holding one-on-one meetings with my with everyone on my team every week and i think those are really important to provide kind of continuity and a space where they feel safe and where they can come to talk to me about things and during those meetings i learn a lot about them as individuals as well as as budding scientists and so i think that's important and then the other thing that i also think is important is doing group or community activities outside of the lab so getting mm-hmm. out and having fun together We'll, we'll go eat meals together. We had a, a game night for a holiday party this past year and everyone came to my house and we all we sat around and played games for a few hours in the evening. And that was really fun. Just kind of getting to know people on a more casual level. And I think both of those are really key to learning more about people, but also just getting them to be comfortable with each other and with you.
2: Are you hiring?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are always looking for good people
2: something that you're sort of mentioning without mentioning is that it seems like you're a very good listener, which is a skill that I feel like has to be a prerequisite for a really good mentor. I don't know you like the EDC boys do, but I'm gathering that just as a spectator here. So that's pretty cool.
3: Yeah, I would say that's true. I think especially as I've kind of grown into my role as a a principal investigator, I've definitely leaned into listening more and talking less, especially in one-on-one meetings with my, team
1: how are you prioritizing all that time <laughs> <laughs> because there's there's no way that you can like lead a whole team are you really meeting with them like every week for for how long how do you do
3: that um so practically we try to meet for an hour as my team gets bigger the time sometimes gets smaller depending on specific demands that i have the time will be less but i try to build in things around it so when i'm scheduling stuff i put in what i think is most important and then i build out kind of around that and i feel like these one-on-one meetings are really critical to making sure that the team is operating kind of like a well-oiled machine. And so I, I prioritize things around that time.
1: You threw a little analogy in there. You must've been working with Damien.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I mean, I think that you're sharing some of these practical points and steps and strategies. You must've been working with Nick. Uh,
3: <laughs> that too. But, Mike,
0: <laughs> but you've also had mentioned passion, kind of feelings, sentiments, and emotions. Would you have described some of these aspects in and around your work in leadership as you are now? And would that have been something that you would have described before in the past of your perspectives on scientific leadership?
3: So thinking about kind of the role of emotion in scientific leadership and development. hmm the short answer would be no. I think that in working with, with Nick and Damien and EDC in the, over the past few years, I've really come to develop a new appreciation for the role of emotion and emotional intelligence in, in developing leadership skills and developing really successful leadership skills. I think it's such a critical piece that I had been overlooking earlier in my career, just kind of being very focused on on typical metrics that we focus on, publishing papers, getting grants, giving talks at meetings, making networking connections, but I had been overlooking uh, the importance of kind of developing that emotional piece. And I think in working with um, EDC, I've really come to appreciate the importance of my emotional side and how much more successful I can be by tapping into that part of myself.
0: That's awesome. So how would you describe that sentiment or that experience to say somebody that like an older Sarah that didn't fully understand or appreciate that aspect, how would you then reach out to this, that particular audience? or That kind of viscerally understand, but how do you conceptually develop a framework around that?
3: Yeah, so I think that's kind of a million-dollar question that um, (laughs) I think I'm still developing a good answer for. But I guess if I was to answer you right now, what I would say is it kind of has several parts to it. So one, I use the emotional piece as a compass to help kind of guide me in my decision-making and in my interactions with other people by determining how I feel about a situation and reading their emotions and figuring out how that fits together and finding kind of, we talk a lot about resonance, finding a lot, finding how the two emotional states of two different people can fit together and ebb and flow. And when you are really dialed in and your emotions are kind of matching with the other persons, you can really get amazing things done versus if if you kind of are dissonant and the emotions are not matching up, those are the situations where you may be met with resistance or you your goals aren't aligning or your expectations aren't matching and so i use that very much as a compass a compass in my interactions with other people but also a compass for myself as far as where i am so i think a lot about kind of being centered in knowing where i am and if i'm kind of centered in this calm flow zen state depending on whatever word you subscribe to or want to use When I am there, then it's a lot easier for me to think creatively, to make efficient, effective decisions, to communicate with people regardless of their state. And so being able to use emotional intelligence to kind of navigate those waters of myself and then of interactions with other people has been really critical. I think, especially in these first few years, as I've been setting up my lab and building my team and my, um, my mentoring approach. Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was going to say the same thing.
3: Power, powerful that's, stuff.
1: I think that's better put than either one of us has ever said.
3: <laughs> I think about this a lot. I haven't ever articulated it that way though.
2: Can we use that for the UDC bio? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <all> right. <laughs> sure. Get her to sign a waiver now. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> you can
1: credit. You can credit me
3: to it. Yeah, that <laughs> you is. Credit a- it to me. <laughs>
0: Beautifully, beautifully put. I think that allows us to kind of really gravitate towards some of these concepts, what you've talked about, the resonance or other centering uh, strategies or what you like nicely said, what you've ascribed to. And this part where you said what you've ascribed to you. So you can see and sense that there are certain ideas that people have about what this emotional intelligence or what we call in the business world, the touchy feely side of the soft skills. And so So do you still see there are old traditional ways within the scientific field that still tries to stay very practically minded and still ingrained in these old worlds of thinking that the publisher Paris objective oriented metric driven mentalities? Do you still buttress against those things from time to time?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of always going to be there. It's and it's the way that the success of a scientist or an academic has been measured forever. And so it's hard to kind of switch completely away from that. And I think in some ways it is important to still measure those things just because measuring qualitative emotional metrics is, is really, really hard to do in any kind of a fair way. But I do think that there should be some kind of a shift to be more inclusive of, of both. I don't think I have, I have the answer for how to do that, but I can tell that there is a shift in trying to be more inclusive of some of those soft skills when evaluating candidates, for example, when interviewing for graduate school applicants, which is a process that I just went through interviewing for OHSU's incoming class, and We had a very, you know, specific rubric of things that we were looking for, but there were a lot of soft skills sprinkled into that rubric. And I think um, there is a shift towards looking for that in people, how exactly to measure it when you're thinking about things like tenure and promotion and, you know, national awards and grants. I'm not sure that we're there yet, but I think at least in the applicant pool selection process, we're making some headway.
0: Wow. That's huge. And so think about when you were applying for grad school. Do you? F- find that your approach would have resonated a little bit better with you as a young grad student?
3: I think so. I think one of the things that I was always like really concerned about or worried about as a, as like an early trainee was, was I good enough? Could I, could I meet these metrics that were kind of like laid out for me? And, and so I think having a more holistic approach and looking at the person as an individual can probably help to kind of quell some of those fears that I know pretty much everybody has.
1: That's crazy. I mean, it, EDC has been doing a lot of recruitment as of late, you know, with the new year and and everyone having new groups and expanding old ones, but also. So to a certain degree, I've been involved with some residency program recruitment. And uh, it's, it's a growing trend. You know, it's, it, I don't know if I would say it's nice to hear, but it, it's maybe interesting to hear that from a job perspective, just in the market in general, we're looking for more life experience. You know, I, I haven't found a good term to say it, but it, it's sort of people that have under air quotes, you know, common sense. You know, th- there's a certain amount of life experience that we're looking for now that is really difficult to define in those common metrics, you know, like GPAs and, and the things that people typically try to measure with you know a number. So when it comes to recruiting for a group, are there different things or maybe in that recruitment that you were doing, like what were those EQ measures that you were looking for that might not have been on the sheet or on that rubric.
3: One of the terms I think that comes to mind for me is is self-awareness. I think the applicants who could tell me about, you know, a, a personal struggle that they had had or, um, or kind of overcoming something, or at least to, to show that they could think about it and kind of articulate it to me, kind of meant more to me than than their ability to talk about their science. Not that your ability to talk about your science should be undervalued, like that's a super important skill, but I feel like that can be taught as opposed to someone who is aware of something that they've struggled with and overcome or can tell me like, you know, this is how I learn best, or I'm looking for an environment that has, you know, XYZ characteristics, or I like rotations to be short, I like them to be long, I like a mentor who has a lab environment like this, like somebody who has some idea of of how they learn and the environment that they thrive in, because that sort of awareness is much harder to teach than to help someone explain science.
0: Scientific concepts. Mm, wow, that's actually good because you get them to express it from their perspective. And so my question then that just leads to this question about expressions of those abstract concepts or feelings and emotions. Would you say that your vocabulary of terminology has increased? And what are some new things? Terminologies that you've picked up that you would have never have normally utilized in the past and or may have changed meaning like you gravitated to the word self-awareness.
3: Yeah, so I think since doing kind of this emotional awareness, emotional quotient kind of work, I definitely can see that my vocabulary has expanded, especially when it comes to using words to describe feelings or emotions. I think that having awareness of my own emotions and trying to explain those and trying over and over again a lot of times through written word, through my journaling practice, has really helped me to expand my vocabulary and use different words that, will... Will resonate. That's an, another word that I probably wouldn't have used very much before with different people. So much so that oftentimes in conversations with my husband, I'll use a word to describe a situation, and I can count many times where he said, Oh, that's like the perfect word to describe that. And the fact that he kind of clicks in with that word suggests to me that it isn't only something that makes sense to me, but that it's making sense to someone else. And I think just kind of the ability to use written or spoken word to to connect with other people in that way is really useful, especially when you're trying to get your point across, whether you're trying to teach someone a class or or convince mm. someone to fund your grant or explain a concept to a new student. The ability to use different words to describe different things or to describe the same thing in a different way to someone is really valuable. And I think I used to do that on a more kind of quantitative way when I would teach people scientific concepts. Um, You you mentioned in the intro that I'm passionate about teaching, which is true, and I used to use it a lot in a technical way, but now I find myself using it more to relate to people as opposed to, to explain how something works.
0: I have to admit, Nick and I, we talk a lot about these concepts and choosing vocabulary and words to help describe some of these esoteric types of concepts and we take from multiple different fields and not to mention the books that we've read and different other research and work within these social environmental developmental programs is a myriad of words and like you had mentioned before one word I have actually started incorporating within my arsenal of vocabulary is the emotional agility. Can you uh, name the book and author th- to our audience?
3: Yeah, so emotional agility I got from a book by Susan David. Mm-hmm. Emotional agility by Susan David. And it's probably one of my favorite books that I've read in the last few years as far as being kind of paradigm shifting and mind blowing. and in the way that she talks about emotions and getting in touch with your emotions and how beneficial that can be. So I highly recommend that one.
0: That's a great terminology and I really appreciate that. And I wanted to shift it to kind of talk a little bit about where you're starting to see how old world science and medicine is being taught and then some of the younger generations and how they're, for lack of a better term, getting more in touch with their emotional side of things. Do you feel as though that you're helping to bridge that gap between these two, this very hard, practical, goal-oriented, objective side to more resonance and team development side of things? And what are some negative affects if you've seen from that?
3: Yeah, so I think one approach that I'm taking and that I'm seeing kind of a shift in different places is a new appreciation for work-life balance and an acceptance that people have a life outside of work and that if you allow them to kind of bring their whole self to work and and take time for themselves away from work, that they're actually happier and more productive and healthier as a result of that. And so that's something that I really try to practice myself and then also instill in my team. So much so that we will take like a whole day out of the year, actually multiple days because we do it a couple times a year, but to do different kind of retreats and team building exercises. Like last year we went to the beach and spent a whole day at a House there, kind of reflecting on the year and talking about, you know, things that we had achieved and things that we wanted to do next year and how we could work better together as a team. And I think that experience from the perspective of someone who's very focused on traditional scientific metrics and measures can look like a fluffy waste of time and resources <laughs> because that's a that's a day that you can be using to generate data and ask things off your to-do list. If I think too much about that, then I can could be dissuaded from doing it, but after doing it and feeling the difference in myself and the difference in my team and how well we all gelled together after coming back and kind of the new excitement and enthusiasm similar to that, that you get from going to a scientific meeting was what made it worth it. And the reason that I will do it again.
0: Yeah. So social pressures, like you just said that if you think about it too much, that you could be dissuaded. How do you fight that old world thinking, you're not working hard enough. What do you mean vacation? Everybody should be in the lab working 24-7. There's still that air, that social pressure to be this top performer and you have to be working in the lab 24-7. How do you fight that feeling?
3: So I think the way that I do it the most successfully is just in reflecting on the effect that it has on me. So I've definitely been there and done that working 24-7 kind of not taking vacations when you should and even if you take We're vacation. We're all raising
0: <laughs> our hands here. Checking
3: email on vacation and you know finishing projects on the side and then coming back from that vacation and feeling like you still need a vacation and and just doing that kind of treadmill for years and that was how I lived for a really long time and it wasn't until I put up some boundaries for myself and, and started trying to actually disconnect and actually step away and actually take vacations or time off when I was sick and realizing the positive impact that it had on my productivity that I could actually do more with less as opposed to kind of pushing 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 and'm um, I'm, I'm a runner and, and those who know me know that I'm very passionate about running and so I think about it a lot in kind of the way that I think about running and you can't run at a really fast pace for a really long time you have to oscillate the pace based on kind of what's needed and the same is true in life or in science. You have to take rest and you have to take breaks or like in, in sports, you will get injured and you don't want to get injured so that you can't come back.
1: At some point, those measures do influence a lot of other things that we're doing. Like Just because we don't necessarily want to put them as high on the priority list as they have them doesn't necessarily mean that they go away. So I if this is a marathon, have you gotten somewhere near the end where you can show like, yeah, look, you know, it feels better and I'm actually doing better?
3: I mean, I think so. I think if I look at my productivity, um, so each year at the end of the year, I kind of look back and reflect on the year and the things that I've accomplished. And I think in the last three years, each year, I think I've accomplished more and bigger things. And I credit that to the fact that I now do a bit more of this ebb and flow as opposed to like 100 miles an hour 24-7.
0: Yeah, there's this law of diminishing returns when we think you get some productivity out of like maybe if I can do with in one hour and get more done in two hours and then then in four hours and then six hours. Eventually it compounds till it starts to diminish and you get that first success and then it goes down really quickly and then you just 16 hours and then 18 hours and you just need to do more. And then this is a surefire way of like burning out and that burnout, it creeps up on you, doesn't it?
3: (laughs) Oh, it definitely does. And actually in reference to Nick's question, I have a very concrete but relatively small example actually just from yesterday. The last couple of days I've been writing a grant kind of on short notice. So writing it very quickly, very intense focus for relatively long periods of time. And I got to a point at which I was kind of a stopping point had sent it off for some revisions from co-PIs on the grant and I still had some projects that required intense focus that needed to be done and I still had a few good hours of work left but mentally I was spent and didn't want to do anything except for like respond mindlessly to emails. But I knew that that wasn't a good use of my time at that moment. And so I did something that I've never done before, which was take a walk. Um, I went outside, took like 15, 20 minute walk, came back to my office, and then I was able to dial back in and focus on some other tasks in a way that I wouldn't have if I hadn't taken that break. So that's kind of a, mm-hmm. like a real world, small example of the, of the benefit of that that I've definitely like telling lots of people about because it reinforces for me <laughs> the utility of how doing How did
1: you it. know that you were in that place? You know, we talk mm. a lot about, you know, yay, like we're in a positive place and, and you know when to do it. But really the, the piece of the puzzle here that we all really need to get familiar with is when we have to stop. What does that look like for you? And how do you notice that about yourself?
3: Um, I guess some some signals that I pick up on are kind of this feeling that I need to just go, like, do a whole bunch of small tasks just for the sake of, like, checking boxes or, like, getting things off my to-do list. Even if I know they're not, like, the most important thing that I should be doing with that chunk of time, the rewarding effect that I get from, you know, responding to an email or reading something quickly and giving someone a response outweighs for me at that moment, the benefit that I will get from working on like a small piece of a bigger task. And so realizing that as well as the feeling that I just wanted to like go home and take <laughs> a nap, I was like, well, I I can't do that right now because I have other things that, that need to be worked on. And so I went to the next best thing, which was to go like get some fresh air and, and I reset.
0: How do you articulate the beneficial aspects versus being plain? as not being challenged or i.e. being lazy how do you uh, regulate those two right because there will be those that were like you're not working hard enough we know those or you're being lazy but then there are those that like oh yeah she says i can take a break i do uh, do this and do uh have a long vacation like how do you know that they're not taking advantage or how do you get them to not see it that way
3: so that's, that's a great question and a really big gray area that I think, to answer honestly, that I still struggle with because I very much want to em- embrace the concept that, that people do need breaks, but it can also be abused. So I think you do have to... To watch out for that, and I guess the way that I kind of judge it is, and the way that I do it with my my team is, everything is kind of based on productivity. If you're meeting, you know, deadlines and getting things done that need to be done, then you know, totally fine to take a break. But if you're taking too many breaks and and things are falling behind and projects are slipping and things like that, then maybe we need to you know have a conversation and reevaluate and see, you know, is it is the workload too big? Are the expectations too high? Or is it you know is something not is something not fitting right with you that you know you're you're unmotivated to work on it and you feel like it's okay to take a break because maybe then the work isn't a good fit I think that comes back to like alignment of goals and things like that because people aren't I, I feel like people aren't inclined to want to go take a break as often if, if their goals are aligned with yours and they're trying to reach the same endpoint as you. But if, if you both have different expectations and different plans for what you're working on, then it's a lot easier to, to justify like, oh, I'm going to go take a break and just let this slide. Cause I don't really care about it anyway.
0: Uh, sounds like you do know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> this is actually a good segue into these ideas of flow state. From time to time, we talk about being in this kind of flow within your work and being able to resonate at any given point in time. Can you describe what that feels for like for you and what does that mean for you to be in a flow state?
3: So I think the... One of the easiest like times to describe it is is often when I'm doing creative writing, um, when I'm working on a grant or a new idea or uh, working on a presentation. I, I love making presentations and slides. And when I get in that kind of creative frame of mind where I'm trying to take an idea that I have in my head and articulate it to someone either visually or in a written way or synthesize a bunch of information, that I'm reading in some kind of coherent manner and I just get kind of focused in on that and time passing kind of becomes irrelevant like if I pay too much attention to the time then that's sure to kind of prevent me from entering into that creative flow state but if I can just kind of focus on the task that I'm working on and and let the time be irrelevant then I find that I come up with some of my best ideas or like coolest way of explaining something. And I think one way that helps me to get into that place when maybe I'm struggling to, or if I, I feel like I'm trying to come up with an idea and I'm hitting a brick wall, is to kind of remove any expectations or any parameters from it and just free write. Like if I'm trying to come up with an idea or solve a problem and I, and I'm having trouble, I'll just start journaling about it. And then eventually I'll usually come up with something.
0: I wanted to let the audience know just, uh, Sarah, you have told her (laughs) this many times when I, when she first started working with us, she came to us and said, I don't have enough ideas. I think I need to read more. (laughs) her response was like, oh, okay. How so? (laughs) After working with a year, she was like, I have so many ideas. I don't know which one to execute on.
3: (laughs) Still a problem.
0: I don't need to read more. There's more that I want to do. (laughs) And so then with that in mind, like how then do you prioritize? I think this is kind of an ongoing thing for the creatives, people that are in these flow states and stuff. And then Pablo goes through this as well. Truth. Like there's so much that you want to incorporate and to do. But like for yourself for, as a creative, how do you choose?
3: <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it can be hard because there are so many cool questions to answer and, and you know, tools to discover and, and need experiments to do. And so, I mean, there's a few things, I guess, like on a practical level, there's only so many resources. There's only so much grant money. There's only so much personnel time. And so you have to be judicious about how you use that and and try to stay focused on something within certain parameters so that you can get publications. Because again, coming back to these traditional metrics and measures, we're still measured by grant money that we bring in and papers that we publish. And so you can't be so scattered and diverse in what you do that you can't pull it back together into a publication or use it as preliminary data to write a grant. And so I, I try to always kind of keep myself in some kind of boundary with that in mind but then also allowing for some creative wiggle room and I think there's a striking a balance there that that I would be lying if I said I had figured it out I'm still kind of playing with how much do you dabble versus how much do you focus and I think it's different for everybody but the ability to kind of stay unified around a few central topics but then also explore kind of the fringes and and kind of oscillating between those I think is is kind
0: of a good recipe for it. Mm, good old constraints. And see, this is where metrics and measurements help balance that out. The EQ balancing out the IQ and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to wrap things up here, but what would you advise young faculty going through and developing these types of leadership skills? And what maybe say the top three things that you do to cultivate these skills? Would you just say a bar none, please do this, it will save you, that type of thing.
3: I mean, I think I can't say enough good things about journaling on a a practical, you know, what can you do to to get some benefit? I I think journaling is an outstanding way to kind of get in touch with yourself and your thoughts and, and develop an ability to get into a flow state and tap into your own kind of creativity. So on a practical level, I recommend that on a more kind of abstract experiential level. I think something that I'm exploring more myself and kind of diving into, especially in the past couple of years, is really kind of learning to love and and actually loving kind of the growth process and, and that kind of the pushing into those levels of discomfort and challenge where you know you're growing and learning. And I used to kind of shy away from that as a as a trainee and, and as a younger as a younger Sarah, but now it's something that I really truly love and so just figuring out ways to to do that in all aspects of my life and kind of and looking for those growth opportunities is something that I really enjoy and, and find enriching for myself. Um, and then I guess another thing that I have also come to value and, and really realize something that is is helpful in one's career and just one's life in general is kind of the importance of connection um connections with other people and Mm. connection with yourself and being able to maintain those relationships using some of the techniques that we talked about kind of emotional awareness and 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 listening like pablo mentioned developing empathy and compassion for other people i think is is also really key to
0: wow I think those are like some real good, practical, executable and actionable steps that our audience can take. Uh, what's next for Sarah? Where does the Andrus Lab go from here?
3: Um, well, we are working to get out paper right now. Looking at our kind of our human milk project. So look out for that, hopefully in the next few months. And yeah, we're we're just trying to grow our team and hoping to to develop some novel therapeutics to help people with intestinal inflammation. And
0: would it be okay if people reach out and interested in some of your work?
3: Oh, absolutely. Our team is always looking to grow. So if you're, if you heard something that that got you excited, please uh, reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk to you.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time and coming to chat with me and Damon. Yeah, Pablo's great company, but you know, between the three of us, sometimes it's nice to mix it up a little bit with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. It was, it was so much fun. Thanks okay. for having me.
1: So if any of you want to know a little bit more about Sarah and, and some of her work, you can go on the OHSU website directly. That's OHSU.edu. Uh, or her lab has its own website, and that's SarahAndresLab.org. You can also find her on Twitter at SarahFAndres. And of course, if you want to hear more about journaling and all the things that Damien and I are interested in chatting about, find us at our website, that's experimental-designs.com. Don't forget the dash, Uh, or obviously on all the platforms, you can hear us chatting away on this podcast. So thanks again on behalf of Damien and myself, Pablo, thank you. And again, Sarah, thank you very much. This has been the EQIQ Podcast. This was a Raul Maria production.
2: Sarah, you're a pro. <laughs> Thanks. You're schooling all of us. That was <laughs> yeah. insane. That's great.